0: Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture and organised by Architects the Space with the assistance of Rob Fain, the talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fandes Ecla European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered.
1: Thank you. And thank you all for for coming. Um, So welcome to the Negroni Talks entitled Net Zero to Net Hero. Um, uh, I'm George Morgan. My pronouns are he and him. Uh, I'm a director of a small practice called 1.5 Architecture, and I'm also a sustainability advisor helping architects and their clients work in a more sustainable way. And I co-host the um, Architects Journal Climate Champions podcast with um, Hattie Hartman. Uh, so we've got a fantastic panel to, uh, yeah, really get to grips with, um, with uh, Net Zero. Uh, they're going to introduce themselves um, uh, 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 when they start um, speaking. Uh, so we've got uh, Mitakshi uh, uh Tara Bellade, and Jonathan Fashnu, and we should have uh, Matt Bell on the way. Um, so, we're um, recording this uh, just a, um, a few days after the IPPC um, sixth assessment report, it synthesis report. Um, so, the 1.5 and 2 degrees pathways need um, deep, rapid cuts and immediate emissions cuts to, um, to basically uh, save the planet. Um, so our carbon emissions need to basically plummet immediately. Um, the last chance to save the planet, uh, according to the Guardian. Um, so uh, it's quite, it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a, well, the most serious topic there is, really. Um, a, a recent nature piece suggested we could have 1.5 degrees by 2030, 2 degrees by 2045. Uh, could be even worse than that. So. Heat waves, forest fires, storms, floods, hurricanes, droughts, water shortages, rising sea levels affecting coastal cities, um, less food globally at two degrees, half as much food in, uh, in some places. So um, yeah, it's a real kind of fate of the planet topic. Um, so uh, yeah, so in, in terms of the built environment, we've had things called net zero carbon uh, called zero carbon homes or London Plan zero carbon. That's been around for a while, often with fossil gas boilers, and the term is kind of used in a bit of a sort of dodgy way. Um, So the best practice in the industry is settled around whole life carbon, um, but the methodology for that assumes that you're not allowed... So that the carbon that you've stored in wood or straw, at the end of the building's life, that's going to be burned or composted, so um, you're not allowed to subtract the carbon that you've stored from the carbon that's gone into the other materials. So you end up with a, a positive amount of carbon. Um, and then to get that um, to get that net, you need to have some kind of offsetting scheme. Um, Post Greta, net zero has become the buzzword. Clients or their investors, um, rather than asking for a net zero society, they're often looking for net zero buildings. Um, so, um, with with offsetting, the Guardian recently reported that more than ninety percent of of offsets from the biggest certifier are, are worthless or, or maybe even make things worse. Um, so uh, yeah, I wanted to start with, uh, with you, Jonathan, as, a, as an engineer. Um, so uh, somebody that's used to thinking about about kind of numbers and, and processes. What do you think of net zero and how real is it?
2: Yes, George, thank <laughs> you. As, as the engineer on the panel. Um, so I will give you the numerical representation of, of the model. Okay, so To me, uh, net zero is still a very abstract thing because I think when when you look at net zero in itself, there's an equation there. And the equation is how much carbon emissions can we absorb or pull out of the atmosphere that will allow us to still produce emissions? So in that perspective, it's almost like It's it's something that will keep on shifting, but also it's a numerical model that basically still allows us to produce um, emissions so That to me is the is the is the pessimistic view You know, it's you know, it's, it's something that I'm not so excited about when I talk about net zero however, I do love the conversation around net zero because it's almost like a bit of a compass so from an abstract perspective if we look at it as a compass and say it is pointing us towards real zero um, it is actually spurring a lot of conversation in society about how can we be more sustainable and how can we reduce our emissions but as a mathematical model i'm not too keen on it
1: great um so so tara as a as an architect that's that's working on sort of scales from public planning policy down to delivering um, individual buildings. How do you see net zero in, in terms of architecture and, and building?
3: Um, maybe building a little bit on what um, Jonathan highlighted. I think that net zero as, a, as an industry we're still grappling with. We're still grappling with what that literally means for us um, on. Individual building level, as well as policy, as well as policy-wise. So while we're having definitions coming through with whole life carbon, as you um, highlighted earlier, I think we're in a space where local authorities are uh, looking. Local authorities are looking at what that means um, for them. They may have declared a climate emergency, but um, sorry. They may have declared a climate emergency but setting really firm targets for operational energy or embodied carbon um, some have gone as far as doing so others um are still skirting around what what that means for them or restricting the impact of that to say council-owned owned buildings as opposed to the wider um, authority or the wider borough so I think as an industry it's our responsibility to continue to push the boundaries um, in that respect in terms of setting policy and ensuring that we have stringent policy that we're all working towards um, coming down to the um, To the individual building level. Certainly for us and in in our practice, we're working with a range of different types of clients where education is a real piece. um, Not just for them, but for us as as architects as well. You know, we'll often have our clients turn up and say, We want a sustainable building. And we always start with, Well, what does that mean to you? Um, And for many, it might look like PVs on the roof. And we have to go through a whole process of well, actually, we want to adopt a fabric-first approach. We have to go through a whole education piece, but we really feel it's critical for us to invest in that education piece, um, so that further down the line, when decisions are made, being made and we're not in the room, they can, they can, um, they can ensure that you know, they're choosing the wood fiber insulation, for example, over, a say, PIR, because they, under- they have an understanding now of, say, embodied carbon uh, to a degree. So I think it's really important that we're working on both scales and we continue this educating
1: piece. Okay, thank you. It's um, actually, um, you work at um, a large practice, Broadway Malian. Um, so how does the net zero gender affect a sort of that scale of practice? Is it something that clients are asking for? How does it work? Um,
4: um, it's, it's, it's a very interesting um, area really for a large practices, um, some of whom are, uh, Currently, at a very different level of maturity than the others, so you have to gauge where you are at within that space as well. So we can't—I wouldn't put—I I wouldn't necessarily put all large practices in one um, silo per se. But I think it's—it's it's, it's quite interesting because when you're working with people at a global level, you have to really understand that markets are different. And um, different clients in different markets are asking for different things, and that um, uh, th- that really confuses your internal agenda as well, because you can't go out there and have um, a, a very clear headline. And this is exactly what we're going to do, whether you want it or not. But and of course, clients are going to have to pay for some of that. Um, but really, before we go into the the kind of debate around how it affects the. Uh, um, you know larger practices we should really be asking if we should be talking about it in terms of sustainability as a, as, a, as a Sustainability team or a sustainability sustainable part of your design because all design should be sustainable and that's the point of I mean we shouldn't need to have sustainability teams or sustainability leads everything should be going that way and it should Um, uh, uh, That's where we should start our conversation from whether it's a small practice or a large practice in large practices Especially ones that have been established for a very long time the difficulty in it is unpacking um, What uh, the systems that have been put put in place for for long periods of time and trying to? Work with different markets that you function in so those are the two major things so you have to unlearn a lot of things as well as you have to learn how to work in different places and uh, respond to the context rather than take yourself there and create a, a sort of, um, um, I don't know, uh, a view that this is how we are going to do it. We are right and this is exactly how we are going to do it. That's not the right way of, of going ahead and doing it. Okay. Okay. I mean, that's my opinion and that's what we <laughs> yeah. Thank you.
1: Um, and then um, Matt, so Heatherwick is a. Uh, Kind of very unique practice, um, I think no bread and butter project is the, is the way that you kind of think about it, everything's a kind of special project, so how, yeah, how does Net Zero fit into, into yeah, into that?
5: Heather, it's interesting because we talk a lot about trying to create um, objects which are, which are loved and last are the two words that we focus on a lot. I think a lot of architects are getting drawn into designing really boring Net Zero boxes, and I think they're going to get torn down in 20 years, and then we'll do it all again. And the embodied carbon is a conversation we don't need to have. So I think there's... um, I think it's the third kind of leg of Vitruvius, isn't it? It's thinking about emotion as a function, and how do we create something that people will love? Because then it'll last, and they'll look after it, and you'll begin to address the management issues, and that's ultimately how you create something that's sustainable. I, um, I think it's also quite an interesting conversation about how we get big business involved in this generally as well. So the um, everybody know know in the business community, they are obsessed with net zero carbon pathways. <laughs> it's, like, it's like not having one, is like coming to a party without your underwear. You know, it's one of those things you go, what, you haven't got one? And they're all focused massively on scope one and scope two, you know, which is fine, it's the easy bit, which we all get drawn into as designers and architects. So scope one and scope two is fine, it's the stuff you can command and control, you can manage it, you pay for it, that's fine. And there's gonna come a point in the mid-20s when all of these companies who've set a massively bold net zero carbon target for 2030 are gonna go, oh, and they're gonna realize they're not on track for it. And they'll have done zone scope one and scope two, all the offsets will have shot up in price, there'll hardly be any left, so that won't be an option, and there'll be scope three left, and it's the bigger part of your pathway normally, and you don't control it, and it's all dependent on the choices of your customers, and your supply chain, and your citizens. So the way I would be pitching into business and the kind of conversation we're starting to have is around that scope three bit. So any client around the world, which is of any size, has got their pathway and they haven't got a freaking clue what to do about scope three. And that, it's interesting because it kind of requires us not just to think of ourselves as architects or as building designers. So if you step back a bit and think, actually, I'm a creative, I'm architect, artist, and activist, and you've got scope three, which is about how do you create a conversation for a business with, its, cl- with its, cu- its client base, its customers. And that is all, what they're reaching out for is who can help us have that conversation so that we can get people on side who we can't control. And I think if you can then, that, that is the interesting space for me. Okay,
1: great. So if the net zero agenda is coming from a, a kind of investor and a kind of business, Um, Direction that each project, this project can be net uh, net zero, this project can be net zero. Uh, Maybe that means we don't need to think about how much we're building. Is there a kind of tension between the idea that everything could be net zero and society being able to
5: get to net zero?
1: Are we we just building too much by by pretending it? There's two
5: things. First, it's not just about net zero. It's, It's ecology. So net zero is a subset of ecology. So, don't frame it too tight, would be my first my starting point. And that's true of a building or a place. You know, if you think of ecology first and net zero being a component of it, we're all fixated with it because it's stuff that you can measure. And that's easier. <coughs> and the client finds that easier. But I'd broaden the kind of frame of reference immediately. But don't let me hog.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, uh, do you, any of you want to, um, yeah, kind of uh, comment on,
3: on what you've heard at all? Uh,
2: do you want to comment on what you heard? Uh,
3: I was just going to build on the uh, broadening um, broadening piece actually Um, because yes i know we're talking about net zero but i think it's really important that when we're broadening that conversation we're really thinking about the socioeconomic aspect of um, development of buildings of places um, and what a just transition looks like so yes we're looking at buildings but we have a whole industry that needs to be upskilled um, we have um, health and well-being to think about in how we create places, how we shape cities, how we shape new, new homes. And I think that, is, um, that, for me, is an exciting part of this journey, that it really isn't just yes about the building, but actually there's so much more that's um, far more expansive about this conversation that we need to take the time to learn and be invested in as well.
1: So, for example, like, we've also got, uh, we've got a housing crisis in this country, so, so working in, in housing, it's something that we need to kind of be able to meet our society's needs, but also in a, in a sustainable way, I suppose.
3: Yeah, absolutely. But thinking really about who has access to being able to build those homes, who, what's um, SME business get the, businesses get the opportunity to be able to work in these industries? How do we support them? So really, starting from the outset, we're thinking quite widely about what a net zero home might mean, but actually thinking quite widely about the businesses that are going to be impacted and where we can focus the next generation of education. For example, all of these conversations need need and can be had um, from the outset. I really am a strong believer that architects, urban designers, we have far more influence than we initially imagined. And it's really thinking about how we use um, and distribute that power that we tend to have around the table and recognizing ourselves, not um, necessarily as the experts, professionals, yes, but people who live and um, breathe in places, they are the experts of their environments and how we build into what they already have going on.
1: That's an interesting point about um, as designers having a level level of, of power, um, yeah. How do, how do we how do we think feel about the like who's like what's the balance of power? How, a, a client's kind of um, uh, all powerful. How much can we influence them? How much does the funding uh, kind of uh, uh, yeah feed into it? How much yeah? How is, as as designers of various kinds, how, yeah. What how much can we
4: I, th- I think power is a difficult word to work with isn't it but yes I think I think power um, is right in that there is quite a bit of power in what we do because we have the power to to uh, influence decisions um, that people make and I think the education piece that she was talking about before um, comes out quite clearly again in that we have uh, historically not realized how maybe not historically maybe of late have not realized how much influence we can um, uh, uh, bring out with um, just finding a way of being more articulate with our clients and telling them what they need to hear rather than just listening to them when half the time inside our heads we're going you don't know what you're talking about please let me tell you what to do uh, it might not be fair to all clients to, to put it that way, but for the most part, sometimes you do feel that way. Um, and I think we as architects do need to learn how to put our opinions out there rather than being uh, so scared of running a client away for you know, putting um, um, uh, opinions out there that they might not agree with. Um, it's about having that conversation with them early enough so they can make those decisions. And I think the way that we've structured the systems in um, how we do the work that we do um, somehow overlooks that, that point at which we need to have those conversations and make sure that the right decisions need to be made. I think it's a system change that we need to look at and how we do things. Or we need to pick out the gaps and where they are and fill those gaps in because we do have frameworks we do have ways in which that we we function and work with clients that don't exist all over the world we do we do follow certain certain protocols and ways of doing things which which is a fantastic thing we just need to find the gaps and fill those gaps and and find the uh uh the the way in which we can wield that power that you you're talking about it's not you know i'm going to say say something that everyone's probably going is with power, great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> 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 but um, <laughs> what, what I'm trying to say is that um, we, we just need to learn to wield it properly. Um, and um, it's about sharing that information with each other. And um, this is something that I've heard uh, said before in other forums. It's we need to stop looking at everything as a competition. We need to start collaborating more, even if it is with our own competitors. And, um, well, I'm going to stop talking now. (laughs) I
2: I love how you said um, we need to stop listening because architecture and the built environment professionals already, uh, we're already accused that we don't listen. We're accused of always pushing our agenda there. But it's great you said that because nobody seems to know what they're talking about, especially when it comes to net zero. Um, and with a lot of clients, for example, there will be a conversation around sustainability I'm sure you're pretty aware and they say oh, we just want to put solar panels and we'll tick the box on Net zero right because and then they will give you Basically a discussion or they'll tell you about yeah, the grid is going to be decarbonized anyway So I don't need to do anything. I just have my solar panels and the grid is going to be Decarbonized, but there's a big discussion around reducing the energy demand in the place so that the grid can have the uh, Sufficient capacity in 2050 to deal with all that. So there's a massive education piece there's also a Bit of understanding of what actually net zero means to those people who are not as technical as us that that really get it You know there are a lot of businesses for example that talk about offsetting offsetting to me is still a bit of a ridiculous notion because Um, I used to subscribe to ecology and for 40 quid I can run a carbon-negative Business so I can carry on doing whatever I want to do as long as I pay 40 quid. I'm carbon neutral. Hey, you know what? I've got no guilt Um, But when you actually dig down and I was looking at some of the projects, it's a place in Indonesia for example where you're gonna have issues of monoculture going to have issues of violation of human rights. Get out of here. We need to plant this area now to have trees. And when you think about it, it takes a couple of decades for those trees to actually come and those sinks to actually develop. But you're carrying on with the business as usual just because, hey, I've offset my... So I think there has to be a real understanding of what net zero actually means because with a lot of the modelling that's going on, we see scenarios being thrown in there that um, direct you know, direct air capture, for example, to suck out. And they're they're built into the models, but we haven't actually developed the technology for it yet. So how are we now saying, oh, in 2050, we'll have this technology? You know, we had CCS, we had BECS, you know, and now everybody's looking at geoengineering, and you're going, but it's not feasible yet. So why are we building it into our models right now? You know. Why are we
1: kind of... The fate of our civilization depends on these machines Tens. that haven't been invented yet. Absolutely. Just, oh, yeah, it's going to be There'll be a
2: weather balloon in 2050 <laughs> that just sucks out all the carbon.
5: You know. Can I change the time? It's interesting. On the, on the clients, I th- so the bigger clients, I think are actually getting quite sophisticated. And so I wanted to go back to that point about looking at their net zero carbon pathway. I wouldn't go into a meeting without having checked it out, knowing if they've got one. If they've got, it, got one, I'd have gone through it with a tooth comb. And that bit to zero in on is that scope three issue so the scope one scope two knowing what their target is knowing what their deadline is and being able to frame what you can offer as an architect or as a design practice in that specific context is so the moment they'll go oh at last right okay they understand kind of where we're coming from and they've done their research and then the scope three bit where is where everybody's scratching their belly thinking I don't know what to do Sorry, could you just refresh everybody about the scope one, two, so and So if three. you don't know your scopes, then lit, late, slight, <laughs> get your act together, honestly. Have, have another Negroni. Everybody, have another Negroni, get your scopes sorted. <laughs> it is basic, basic, basic carbon literacy. And uh, so, and all the kind of, oh, well, I'm passionate about climate change. If you don't know your scopes, you're not. So in a very simple term, scope one and scope two are the things that you control. So it's your, own, it's your direct emissions. And then it's scope three is the emissions um, which you can't control, which are essentially delivered by your supply chain, your customers, or, or your citizens. So there's a... Um, yeah, it's not complicated. Google it. Sort it out. Thank you. <laughs> so it's be quite robust about that, but it's... You look an idiot going into a meeting with a client if you don't know that stuff, like an ABC. Because yeah. <laughs> it's... Yeah, it's it's, ba- it's how we need to understand what we're trying to do in the next six and a half years but, uh,
4: uh, don't you think that it's such a, uh, such an interesting thing that uh, it's, um, that um, architects are suddenly now being given the uh, the, the job of, of doing net zero everywhere I mean I understand yes forty percent of our emissions or 55 including all the other transport whatever emissions come from the um the use and the building of buildings etc etc but that's just the fact of the matter the fact of the matter is that we live work function in buildings that is going to be the case why are architects given the job of doing this when it should be everyone's job to sit down together and figure out how to do it um, suddenly you are in charge of it you have to do it and if you can't uh, deliver a um i don't know bream outstanding building which suppo- which is supposedly the um um, the level of um, uh, uh, greatness in a building, the way you measure it nowadays, uh, if you can't deliver it, then, then you know, then nobody else can do it zero. Why is it, why is it that we have to deal with that? But it's kind
5: of like your point about power, which is so totally true. So if you do know your shit on that, then you are much, more, even more powerful, you know? <laughs> so it's an extended part of your service offer, isn't it? Um, I think you've got y- very worried people out there with a lot of money and this is the only thing, honestly, in major business, this is the only space where budgets are growing. Yeah, Everything's being shredded apart from the sustainability team. So if you go to anybody in a FTSE 250, the budgets for this coming financial year, starting in 10 days' time, have been assassinated apart from the sustainability teams. Yeah. So that is where to pitch your offer. Absolutely. But on, on, that,
3: on that point of power, though, I think, absolutely, if... If one has the power, scope one, two, three, all the things we can control and can't control, it's important that we recognise that there's, we have a responsibility to share that power. We're not responsible necessarily for. I, I see your point in in terms of you know why are architects now responsible? It's it's a shared responsibility, and I think it's important that we continue to remind ourselves in the industry, our clients, um, the users of our buildings that these this is a shared responsibility, so we can build a building, the best building we've ever built, it's still the the end user's responsibility to ensure that that's operated in the right way. So it is a shared power. It is a shared responsibility. It's our responsibility to be able to continue to expand upon that.
1: Thank you. Um, Should we throw it open to the floor? Has anybody got some points? A mic is on its way to you.
6: Hello. Hi. Firstly, very loud uh, thanks panel very interesting um, through the lens of trying to solve a critical problem with housing the solution seems to be mass production of housing I just as fast as humanly possible get it out the door um, would be interested in hearing you guys seem to represent uh, different spectrums of design studios at different scales catering to different clients perhaps with net zero Obviously, it's incredibly expensive. In clients' minds, it's expensive, and it's hard to do, uh, and they have to set aside a budget for it. Could you talk us through how you see it looking in the, not in the short term, because we know what it looks like now, but in maybe five to 10 years' time? Is it a reduction in scale? Is it not going high? Is it mid-density? Is it low-density? Is it timber building? probably all have answers. It's a very basic question, but like nobody can see here how it's going to be in 10 years' time. Is everything going to be very small, passive house? Or how are we going to solve a, a, a density problem and a housing problem with the current inhibitions net zero give us?
1: Um, maybe, Tara, you're, um, uh, yeah, you work at a lot of scales and, and do a lot of housing. What do, what do you think? Um,
3: I think it's, it's quite mixed, certainly, for, for us. Um, when we're uh, dealing with domestic clients or smaller clients, exactly your point in terms of cost comes up, and what we tend to work with them or work through with them is a whole house um, retrofit, for example, um, approach. Um, so we, while you know, ideally we turn up and say, you know, address your home in all these ways, including putting the air source heat pump, including putting the ground source heat pump now we have to recognize that we're working with their budgets. Um, and so we go through a process of looking at phases and what need, what can be done, what needs to be done now, thinking about our unintended consequences and what can be left till later because we recognize where, where we are as a society. Where we're able to push the boundary when it comes to maybe SME developers, um, we are able to. So if they come in with um, a brief that asks us to look at net zero or sustainability, we or certainly actually says the word sustainability just because everybody uses that word. We usually um, challenge them in the more nuanced way in terms of what does that mean? What does that mean? What are we working towards? Um, and set a specific performance target with them. And we are all working towards that. When it comes to Maybe I'll stop there because it, it really does—it really does change depending on who one is speaking to. But the larger commercial clients, I'm certainly um, heartened by the fact that um, a lot of, say, developers who've signed up to the UK UKGBC's um, Green Building Council's um, guidelines are really taking this seriously and looking at whether it's from a saving the planet perspective or whether it's from their financial and ESG perspectives. There's still a reason that the, the sustainability budgets aren't being cut whether that's financial or saving the planet. And in my view, as long as we're moving towards the right, towards the right goal, that's for me personally, what my output, what my output is. So it really the, the conversation changes depending on who we're speaking to. Fantastic. Do you wanna come in?
4: Yeah, why not? Um, I think it's an interesting uh, question really. Um, the first thought that came to my mind is, whenever someone talks, to, talks about the housing crisis, I keep thinking, is there a crisis? Uh, because are there? I mean, I've heard. I I don't have the, the statistics on me, so correct me if uh, I'm wrong. But uh, I I read uh, constantly about the fact that there are hundreds and thousands of houses remaining empty, and nobody's using them. There's, um, um, uh, you know, there there. There's developments that's supposed to happen. They're not happening all of that kind of stuff So there's there's a larger question that I'm constantly asking in the back of my mind, but as an architect I think um, there are um, Of late the discussions that we've been having are really around what is um, The housing typology going to look like going forward um, and is that going to have to change and and how sh- how are we going to have to look at that change? Because we are a very compliance-driven um, industry. Everything seems to be done in one particular way. Everything looks the same. Everything um, uh, feels the same. And it's not necessarily the most efficient way of doing things. Um, I, I live in one of these new buildings. And, and believe me, it's not fun. They're not fun places to live in. Uh, and. Um, uh I'm sorry to say it, but it's true. Um, and uh, I, think, um, uh, I, I think what I'm trying to say, basically, is I think we have to reconsider where we are at. Uh, in terms of how we've been doing things for a very long time, we are, um, not to mince any words, facing near-term social collapse. We have to understand that the way we've done things uh, cannot be done that way anymore. But it's—I um, think it's—it's unf- it's very difficult for all of us to really wrap that around our brains to change things, to change how we are doing things. Even—even um, even changing the way we do a contract, for example, it takes so long to figure that out. And I—I I don't know what the reasons are. It could be that we don't have enough resources. We don't—you know—clients don't give us enough money, or we don't. Whatever the reasons, I think we have to, um, to answer your question, we really do have to try and understand where we are going and, and draw those pathways, and draw those, um, draw the understanding of what is going to happen five years, ten years down the line, and it is not going to look anything similar to what it is right now. And also, um, there was uh, uh, um, um, one of the architects in our firm, Stephen McGrath, he was mentioning something about how the aesthetic of everything needs to change. That the aesthetic is not about aesthetics anymore, it's about the environment. It's about what works the best. Go, is going, everything's going to have to look the way it looks. It doesn't matter how it looks. It's going to be how things work now. And again, I'm going to stop speaking.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think there's somebody here who has a, a question.
7: Hi, I'm Steve. I'm one of the co-founders of the Negroni Talks and Negroni Delivery Boy tonight. Um, I've got a kind of a political orientated question. Um, I guess a lot of net zero stuff, and we've dealt with it in our office, you're going through those stages that Matt's talking about, and you get to that scope three, and that's where it gets problematic. So my question is kind of about rules of exception, or exception to the rules. And I was minded of Jeremy Hunt's budget and talking about enterprise zones, about 12 across the country. The last one was Canary Wharf, and it was tabula rasa. There was no buildings retained there. and There was no adaptive reuse of anything, maybe bar one, which wasn't under the Canary Wharf group's ownership. and it got me thinking, it's like, in some ways net zero covers a lot, a lot of new build approaches, but not dealing with existing stock, not dealing with adaptive reuse, where there are probably problems at uh, keeping it neutral, and uh, net zero, and, and, and keeping the sustainability side of it in terms of how people act within it. So my question, I guess, is that when the government's about to go and bend the rules again, should we not figure out ways of bending the rules ourselves? Thank you.
5: Um. <laughs> do you want to do that one?
2: <laughs>
5: I love all the politics, so I'm with you completely. I am. Um, I'm going to slightly dodge the question, but. With something, I think you're partly referring to retrofit as a movement and as a campaign. Um, I find a lot of creatives and designers kind of box themselves in as architects. And I think architecture is one of the things you do, but not everything you're capable of doing. And to understand yourself as a kind of triple A, as architect, activist and artist, and to live out all of those things. And I think we tend to default to the building design bit, because that's our comfort zone. And I don't see a lot of, actually, the creative industries generally embracing their activist at the moment. There's a bit online, you know, there's, but most climate art, for instance, stays tucked within a gallery. I don't see a lot of architecture practices doing interesting, dramatic, short-term, temporary, meanwhile, feisty stuff in the public domain. Um, I'm working on a piece at the moment, not as part of Heatherwick studio, which we're going to take a big 10-metre art installation and bang it in a shopping centre in Oxford. Um, and it's about ecology and bees, and um, that it's, it's a small example, but uh, it's me trying to make sure that we take this and use our creativity in sometimes architectural ways, but actually just in all sorts of fashions, and put it in the public domain and find a way to kind of do a mix of challenge and entertainment. Again, which isn't a combination that architects naturally think about, but I, I, th- I would reappraise who we are a little bit and what we can do, and be more political because I think the world needs it.
4: Thank you. I agree, Matt. Um, I've been told um, probably several years ago, uh, Dachshie, please don't bring your activist to this meeting. I do not want to hear your activist in this meeting. We will lose the client if you bring that person in." So uh, you know it happens, um, and you just have to find ways to uh, to work around it. And and your example is fantastic.
7: I think
2: if we're talking about a retrofit as well, there so, sometimes when you have those early level discussions and you don't engage enough of the right sort of disciplines in it, um, it it doesn't seem like it's a viable strategy. Th- that that's the issue. So because, for example, in our practice, we you know I'm an engineer, so what we always try to do is do and gather enough information to make it. A viable solution so we go there we look at the structure and we say look this is safe you can still use it but if for example you don't have enough experience or expertise in that very initial meeting that you're having to say can we what's the feasibility look like that you always default to something that is easy to put out there and I think that's where we should push back you know what I mean and get the right people around because that's sort of how you structured your, your, your practice, Studio Dash, isn't it? To kind of
1: be able to kind of offer a more multidisciplinary kind of set of services so that you can kind of. Uh, with that yeah, so. Though, you, can, you can kind of get to grips with the kind of decisions at the beginning of a project.
2: It, it, it was pretty much so that we could have those conversations early on because typically how, where we used to find ourselves was planning's done, decisions are made, then you bring it, us in and you basically say, how is this going to stand? And at that point, there's a lot of value that's lost um, with those conversations. So bringing a contractor in early, or bringing an engineer early, or you know, um, so it's always worth pulling back now. So so we then we then the reason why we set up as a multidisciplinary is to be at the forefront to have those ex um, I say experts <laughs> barely experts around having that discussion there early on so that we can maximize. So if we're talking about value engineering, because this is where when there's a discussion around sustainability or a discussion around sort of net zero everybody thinks it's an additional cost it doesn't necessarily have to be if very early on you have everybody around and everyone's looking at the project and everybody's seeing what can be saved what can be kept what can be reused um that really brings everything down in price and you're able to actually deliver a lot more value with those discussions and that design very early on
4: thanks Viability, Jonathan. I just remembered. Isn't uh, retrofit VAT twenty percent and new build VAT zero percent? So, so yes, that's that's yeah. there you go. That's the viability for the client. They don't want to pay twenty percent extra, so they will bring the building down. We, we yeah. can't. We can't. And the point is,
5: don't just moan about it online. <laughs> yeah, actually do something interesting, creative to bring the issue alive because that's what we're supposed to be good at.
1: Should we um, go to the floor again? Yeah.
5: <laughs> Thanks. Hi, great panel so far. Um, I definitely agree that we have great power. I don't agree that we have great responsibility. I don't think really net zero is actually implied on architects at the moment. I think it sits somewhere outside of our scope three, the buildings that we've designed for other people. What policy lever would you bring in to make sure we're really responsible for how many stories, how many tons of carbon, how many everything else go into the building? So if I could dream up a way to word this in policy language that d would kind of love, but it would be about those two words, making things which last and are loved. Because if you're in architecture and making things which are not gonna last and which are not gonna be loved, then what are you playing at? And I don't know how to translate that into policy speak, but those are the kind of core ideas, I think, which will make things sustainable, as opposed to net zero, because there's a difference.
1: Because one of the, um, the ways that we've got to sort of organize um, well carbon is, is kind of whole life carbon and the kind of um, the modeling of it and the, um, the targets that, that Letty and, and Reba have got. Um, so, um, so that's, yeah, the kind of the way that we kind of organize it. And how, how do you find them to work with as a system? So to, to, to reduce the amount that we have to offset at the end... Uh, we need to l- limit the amount of, of kind of carbon that's used within the buildings, uh, uh, to uh, like operationally or, or in their uh, in, in their construction. How, yeah? How do you find the targets that we've got? Um, do you have a view on that?
2: I mean, Letty has just published a, a document, I think, and they did it with CIBSE, the mm-hmm. Chartered Institute of Building Services Engineers, as well. Which they have, you know, they've given you a guideline on how you sort of put it together i think with things like embodied and with their embodied energy calculations for example there you are allowed to offset but everything that's operational you're not allowed to offset so i think they've put some guidelines and frameworks to actually define the criteria for a net zero building or at least if a building is going to be net zero or there's is planned or phased to be net zero they must have a plan in which they can hit tangible objectives to get there and therefore it would be cert- certified Sorry, is that your question?
5: Yeah. Yeah. Chuck, Chuck, one more thing. I find the language around kind of carbon, net carbon, zero carbon, carbon positive. Clients just glaze. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Whereas the language about regenerative, I think lands a bit better. Because regenerative is binary. You either are or you aren't. You know, so it's not about a little less of something. It's like, is this going to get us across the gain line? Is it actually regenerative? And I find that works with clients quite helpfully. OK.
3: Tara, did you, you want to comment on that? I was, but there's so much now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think a, a little bit responding to the, um, to the question that was asked earlier. I do think that this is where we, we must, we have no choice but to work in a more integrated way with other disciplines. It's, it's not about us as architects. It really is about bringing the structural engineer, MEPH, in much earlier in our design process, and understanding what they, they can do, but this is why I keep maybe going back to the education um, and upskilling piece because we all have to we all have to go through this. Our industry is continuing to change. We continue to have new materials. We need to be able to understand how we can work with them um, better, but in a in a wider context of collaboration um, with interdisciplinary um, collaboration. In terms of the point on regenerative, I'd I'd agree, it's, it's a word that I was waiting for <laughs> for that to come up on this <laughs> <laughs> on this stage. Um, and I think it's where we need to be going to um, as, as an industry. And this is where I think activism come in, it comes in. I think it's interesting that you highlighted earlier that you, know, you were asked to leave your activism at the door. Meanwhile, I don't actually think we've won a project without bringing our activi- activism first and foremost, um, in, in all aspects. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, and I think that has really, as, as an industry, as a society, I think that has really been brought to bear over the last two to three years, and it's important for us to continue to move in that direction. So regenerative activism, I think it's important that we continue to act in that way.
1: Oh, well, that's exciting that you're able to kind of bring that to the fore in your, in your practice. That's, that's amazing. it's one of
3: us, all our jobs, so yes.
1: Oh. Fantastic. Um, I think there's uh, somebody further. Hello, there?
8: yes. Hi. Um, um, thank you to the panel. I just wanted you to um, ask you to comment on the whole story of the certificates like the Lead and REAM ones because there is a growing feeling that over the last decade, the, the it became so easy to gain a certificate by doing the absolute bare minimum and to place it on your website Um, And it's absolutely impossible to imagine a a practice that doesn't have it on their website, that they uh, have uh, completed projects that acquired LEED, BREAM, WELL certificates. And uh, there is a feeling that it kind of diminishes the importance of um, the whole initiative and why it was all started. What do you think, If, if there is a future to that, is it important to actually keep on, is there a way we could try to filter um, the way people actually acquire these certificates, or we could raise the plank a bit to um, give only the really, really strong and um, pro- projects to, to do that. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Um,
2: I'll, I'll start on this one. Um, I, I think with every certification system or st- set of standards or what, there is always a chance of gaming it once you understand it, right? Um, but for example, if you look at Briam, the the intent was to look at uh, a, a development in a holistic, sustainable manner, and a, award points to that sustainability. However, the whole fact that it's a a point scoring system leads itself lends itself nicely to being able to game it. So I think, um, for example, for then you look at. The passive house, right? Which I'm a passive house designer, and you can actually, you can even have a concrete frame um, or a completely concrete building, and it will still be passive house certified. So I think it's understanding what you're going for and combining a different set of standards. It, building regs, it, this, the same thing as well. So I think as a as a practice or as a professional, if you set the intention or the target. You can then, with these different certifications, teams come to something that's holistic as a designer. So that will then fall on to the designer to be able to rise above just getting that certification to delivering a really holistically and thoughtfully designed scheme. Um, um,
4: I think um, I've had a, a love-hate relationship with certifications throughout my career. Mostly hate. Um, I, I've had. <laughs> Um, I, I, but having said that, I think um, when when the certification started, they, a, and for a, a large part, for a large part of time after that, they have been useful to bring certain, um, bring the, the issues to the mainstream, but it brings me back to the f- um, uh, the point that I made before about being a compliance-driven industry, at least here in the UK, especially with, um, with, with um, uh, local councils asking for BRIAM in every project, and um, that having become because of that, um, the the path has just gone to a little bit of a checkbox exercise again. Uh, and I think they 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 have their merits. They they have they, they bring a framework that you have to work with that can help if you don't look at it as a checkbox system. Um, so I think there's merits and demerits and. The, the way forward, to answer your question really, is if we are going forward with them and if we continue to do them, then we should approach them in a way that is not um, detrimental to the project in just having a checkbox to do it. Um, I don't think that we, we are going to lose the certifications anytime soon because of the, the, the way in which that we function as an industry, as well as um, the way that, the, um, that clients are able to see the value in a building. Is Being attached to those certificates, so they're not going to go away anytime soon the best thing for us to do is to uh, if you can't lose them join them do a better job at working with the Certifications if you have to do them, but that doesn't mean that if if you're not doing a certification that you shouldn't be shouldn't be using the frameworks or using um, uh, the means to get to better outcomes and That's that's how I feel about it
3: Thank you. Yeah, just literally just on that last point, I think it's important to recognize that even when, for example, we talk about um, passive house, passive house certification, which is something we'd work to rather than, say, Bream, um that Passive House Principles is just as important in what we're doing. Um, and, and so I think it's, it's, in, it's important to recognize that it's not this all or nothing line because we don't live our lives like that. Our clients don't live their lives like that. Um, again, depending on where we sit, will we push for certification? Absolutely. Um, but it's still not a failure if we're moving in that direction as well. Okay.
1: The mic's on its way to you.
9: This is um, an architectural development type of question. Um, just in regard to the
3: scope that you mentioned earlier on, um, for a newly um, qualified part three architectural assistant, what level or what's the standard of knowledge that um, do you believe that they should have, especially as a lot of us are you know, moving towards this new graduation position and we, our education varies in different universities as what's required. What do you think is a standard level for those of us starting out as qualified architects? passive house
2: I I would say it depends on uh, um, the practice you get thrown into everything is the answer if you work for a small practice liability health and safety everything so uh, I think it's it's worth uh, paying attention to what's going on in the industry because there's a lot of conversations around what should be happening and the knowledge that everybody should be learning.
5: And I would get obsessive about... So your clients are going to be property companies, aren't they, generally? So if you went on a company website like Grosvenor, which is really interesting because it is the Duke of Westminster and all that goes with that, and they are massively cutting edge on environmental sustainability. And if you look at their net zero carbon pathway, and there's anything that you don't understand in it, educate yourself.
4: I would agree. Uh, Educate yourself, because any formal structure of education is not going to give you what you need to know to deal with what's coming at us.
1: I'm going to chip in myself and also say Passive House. Um, It was my route into sustainable architecture, and I think it it doesn't cover everything, but it gives you a fantastic grounding. Um, so, yeah, there's somebody, somebody over here.
9: Um, this is a question for the representative from Heatherwick. Really interested to hear about you advocating for carbon literacy, um, especially because of, you know, the studio's baggage, I suppose. Things like Vessel and, uh, was it Jan Tree of Life? And I also saw that Jeddah project um, just yesterday in Zine. Is this a new route? at Heatherwick Studios there's a new approach that you're taking
5: I don't understand the question what are you saying
9: (laughs) I think my question is very clear I think my question is very clear
5: I don't think it is
9: the studio has you know a very
5: have you looked at Bayview so if you want to do a building better than Bayview in terms of so it's just got certified lead is net positive in terms of water
9: bayview which was the product of hundreds of consultants working on that project so we're not allowed
5: to use consultants now
9: you're avoiding my question i'm talking no, about i, th- I projects think you are like a bit harcy, and so, so and i'm happy to
5: take it on the chin so is everything that any practice has ever done immaculate absolutely not are we growing and learning and changing totally yeah, you know, but um,
9: that's all I wanted to hear, oh, of and I'm curious we are. to hear more about how oh, of you're doing that.
5: Are. Yeah, and so some of the stuff that I, so I, my personal passion, for instance, is on the social sustainability side, not the environmental one, and we're beginning to do some quite cutting edge around social impact. How studies. does that work
9: with projects like Jeddah?
5: In terms of the In engagement that we've done with artists and makers locally, or the retrofit of an antique desalination plant, or Or what?
9: Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that not a PIF project?
5: I think you'll find the project is probably the best comparator in the UK would be Tate Modern. And tell me you wouldn't have taken that.
9: Sorry, say that again. completely missed that.
5: So the best comparator you'll find in the UK for the kind of project that that one is, the Institute of Making, it would be Tate Modern. So it's the retrofit of an old power station to turn it into a major cultural amenity. I'm not sure there's many practices in this room which wouldn't have jumped at that for the environmental and social opportunity it presents.
9: Right. Should we,
1: should we move on? Is there somebody here? Is
7: um, this working? Can I ask, uh, in terms of um, the way that you evaluate the climate emergency impact of a building, is it possible to move to a single standard so that as a, not, not as an architect, but as, 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 a, as a voter, as a purchaser, as a renter, you could make choices about whether I want to buy that building or that flat or lobby a local authority. Because my sense is, and th- uh, this is a comment on all of the discussions this afternoon, is that there's no common language and there's no common way of evaluating. And therefore, um, how do you, uh, as a voter, uh, make an intelligent decision about what you do next and how you lobby on this topic? Who wants to kick that off?
2: I mean, I mean this is a good question, because uh, one of the things we're sort of looking at, we deal with a lot of clients who are just going to buy their property, or they want to do feasibility studies, and they want to understand how much work will go into, you know, making it either a bit more sustainable. I think w- one of the things we try to do is that definition of what do you mean by more sustainable um, because at the moment it's you, we're using EPCs. EPCs are not very accurate on, 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 on. so you can have something with you th- what you think is a decent EPC, and then by the time you get into it and you, you look at it and you start proposing measures in which to you know um, to reduce the energy demand, it then is a chunky investment. and I think initially we, said we were talking about um, a, a housing crisis and effectively, it might not exactly be a housing crisis but it's more of an affordability crisis and the price of housing that is more of a crisis because it's hard for you know t- to get onto that ladder and that's what the pro- problem is um uh, the answer is there's nothing at the moment you know because also the problem is by the time we get into it you have to do a full-on investigation on almost almost a concept design before you can actually be able to price and say, oh, it's going to cost you 100 grand or 200 grand more. I think probably what needs to be done is we have to look at a way in which we can really accurately measure the energy, the existing energy demand of a a building. And there has to be something around, I don't know, stamp duty that the more sort of energy efficient a building is, the more discount you get on your stamp duty or something like that, which will also push people to to make those improvements on their building before they sell them. I, I think that's the direction we need to go in.
9: Um,
4: I think it's a very interesting question. And um, uh, the standardization bit that you're talking about, it's it's a dream, and it's a nightmare. Uh, because one, it's not necessarily possible. But I'll try and draw a parallel here to, um, let's say, going to a doctor for an ailment. Um, the reason I'm trying to draw that parallel is it's, it's almost like it's as granular as every person, every situation is different and bespoke. And when you go to someone to ask for advice, like a doctor for an ailment, you, you know a GP might be able to solve your problem, uh, but then they might not, and you might need to go to a specialist. And there is a hundred different types of specialists. So uh, the point I'm trying to make here is uh, I think it would be difficult to create that standardization, especially in the type of um, um, systems that we work within. I'll
3: just add, the, uh, the, on the inside, it, it's difficult as well. Because even as a practice, you know, we're working on x amounts of projects. And one is meeting Leti standards. And one is meeting Leti retrofit standards. And the other is meeting RIBA 2030. And another is meeting and it's, it's ridic- And that's just one small, tiny practice, uh, let alone you know across the across the country um so actually moving towards um a standard that we can all agree on to to a degree before government eventually get there gets there um is is definitely one one way to go but i i actually just wanted to go back a little bit um not to cause an argument here but (laughs) i think it's important that as an industry we're okay with failing and we're okay with opening up ourselves to say, by the way, I worked on this building and this is how it didn't work. As an industry, we're so critical about how we address what good looks like, how we address what failure looks like, and how we we address growth in the industry, and I think this is fundamentally why we cannot collaborate with each other, because we're not able to open up and say, actually, this failed here, let's address that together as an industry. (laughs)
1: here. here. <laughs> fantastic. Um, I think I think we've I think that's our time.
4: Uh, Let's do one more.
5: I'm gonna I'm just gonna I'm gonna wrap up there and just say, can we have a big round of applause and a massive thank you to our panel? Sorry, we have gone over time, but there is if you wanna ask them direct questions they might hang around for a bit maybe if they've got time and so we can all have a drink um you can hear the the ice clinking and the glasses chinking and um uh i just like to say that negroni talks uh
1: continues in the past and the and the future so we've got podcasts if you ever want to catch up on our
5: past talks um we've got hopefully maybe an event coming up on the 2nd of may back in ombra our home and um, we might be popping up in clerkenwell design week so there is uh, lots to uh, find out about and um, we're really grateful for your listening tonight thank you
0: thanks for listening for more on negroni talks visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.